You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we confess what we just sang, that we need you. So we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, through your word, you would speak to us, that you would build up and encourage your people this morning, that you'd equip us with all that we need, that we might um, follow you as you call us to, as your disciples, full of faith and courage, believing that you are enough for us, that you've given us all that we need in Christ Jesus, and you continue to teach us by your word. pray that you do that this morning as we study it, and that you continue uh, to stir worship in our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You can have a seat. Uh, good morning. You can grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 12. If you need a Bible, some folks from our strike team will be coming around and can get a Bible for you to read. Luke 12, verses 49 through 59. We're going to finish uh, chapter 12, so we'll read all the way to the end of chapter 12. And, and if you've been with us a little bit, as challenging and convicting as some of these verses have been for me and likely for you, my prayer over these past number of weeks has been that the Spirit of God would use these words from our Lord to refine me, to refine us, and that we would experience the kind of relief we talked about a number of weeks ago where the temporary discomfort of conviction is doing the work in us of removing some of the, the slivers, if you will, from our souls so that on the backside of what Jesus is talking about here in these chapters, we would find relief, we would find fresh joy in Jesus. And we're not really through the woods yet, although maybe you're excited that we're coming to the end of chapter 12. Jesus says today in our passage, probably one of the hardest things he's said yet. So that's exciting. Uh, let's uh, turn there, uh, Luke 12, verse, starting in verse 49. And if I were to have you write down this question in your notes, the top of your page of notes if you take notes, why did Jesus come? And if I were to give you a few minutes to jot down some answers on that, you might come up with a handful of them. All through the Gospels, Jesus gives reasons why he has come. I've listed a few on the screen. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Mark 10, Jesus says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke chapter 4, which we read at the beginning of this study a couple of years ago, he's reading from the prophet Isaiah saying what the prophet Isaiah said, that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, right? Liberty to those who are in chains, recovering of sight to the blind. Jesus is saying, today, this prophecy, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I've come to do these things. John 6, I came to do the will of the Father, Jesus says. John 18, standing before Pilate to be ready to be crucified, he says, for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. 
And as we've said, the overall theme for this whole study of Luke over these number of years comes from Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man has come into the world to seek and to save the lost. So if I were to ask you this morning to answer that question, why did Jesus come? You'd probably come up with an answer such like one of those that we just read. Those would be probably the first things that come to mind in answering the question, why did Jesus come? And those are good answers. Like, don't, don't mistake what I'm, what I'm saying. Those are good and true answers. You should write those down. Right? There might be a few of you who reference John 9, where Jesus says, it's for judgment I came into the world. But probably not too many would immediately go to John 9. And in our passage today, verse 49 Starts right off, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth. That's a fun one. In verse 51, he says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Right? It's some of these statements that Jesus makes that make us a little uncomfortable. Right? We like the idea that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Right? We're a little more uncomfortable when he says, And I came to cast fire on the earth. I think for us to understand Jesus and his mission, we need to understand and hold all of these reasons that Jesus gives us for why he's come together. We can't pit one against the other. We have to hold that Jesus, yes, came to seek and save the lost, to serve the poor, to welcome the outcast, and he came to judge evil and to fulfill the law. He came to bring division and be our Prince of Peace. These things are not mutually exclusive. And I think we get uncomfortable because we would just rather simplify things, right? We want to boil them down to their like, easiest common denominator. The problem with that so often is that we tend to oversimplify things. And when we oversimplify, we, we lose something. For example, we want peace, right? But we don't like sometimes what it will take to bring about peace, That to have peace, you have to deal with all the things that would upset peace. All the things that would produce strife. So today is an exercise in letting Jesus make us uncomfortable a little bit. And this could be the title of the sermon. When Jesus makes us uncomfortable. I don't really work on titles very much, so just go with that one if that's what you'd like to write down today. It doesn't matter to me. The big idea is this, that Jesus comes to deal with all of our sin, and all of our brokenness, so that rather than settling for some kind of false and temporary peace, we can find true and lasting peace in Him. The type of peace He's saying He brings uh, is different than maybe what we're expecting. So let's read our text today, Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 49. We'll read all the way to the end. This is the word of the Lord for us today. This is Jesus speaking, verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. 
And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is God's word for us this morning. As I said, the the big idea of this text is Jesus comes to actually deal with things and specifically deal with sin so that rather than settling for false peace, we can find true and lasting peace in Him. And so we're going to spend most of our time in the first part of this passage, verses 49 through 53, where we see Jesus deal with sin and divide division comes over Him. Those are the first two kind of big ideas we see. And then in verses 54 through 59, there's an application of Jesus for what He's just said that comes up in signs and settlements. So that's how we'll kind of pick apart the text today. First, let's look at Jesus dealing with sin, verse 49. Right off the bat, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, which is exactly what it sounds like. The biblical picture of fire is one of both judgment and purification. The fire that falls reveals right uh, there's right in the flames. Uh, think about it. Uh, things that are consumable, wood and fibers, right? They get burned up and consumed. But what happens when you place uh, precious metals in the fire, right? The impurities rise to the surface and what's left behind is purified. Think Jesus is saying real clearly right here in verse 49 that he's come to bring judgment against sin and evil. He's come to deal with it and to purify creation. And not only does he say, just say what he, why he's come, he's just told us, but we also get some insight into Jesus' heart here. He doesn't just say, I've come to bring fire. Look at what he says. And would, it that, would that it were already kindled. The fires of judgment he brings with him, and he's, sense, and he's essentially saying, oh, that they were already burning. Again, Jesus is maybe making us a little uncomfortable. Right? We're getting a little insight actually into what Jesus is telling us he desires here. So how are we to understand what he's saying? I think there's a couple ways to understand this desire of Jesus that the fires of judgment were burning. Okay? I think we can take Jesus to mean that he's anticipating, if I can say it this way, eagerly anticipating the fires of divine judgment on the earth. Like, he can't wait. And he makes us uncomfortable in, in, if we think about it that way, right? That Jesus, like are we talking about the same Jesus here who is desiring fire to come? But if God is holy, meaning perfect and righteous and all good and not a, not a, a, a strain or a single ounce iota of, of wickedness or evil or wrong in Him, if He is holy and can't abide any of that, 
And Jesus' will, as he's told us in other places, is to do the will of the Father, then it would be consistent that the will of a holy God would be to destroy all unholiness. Logically, this makes sense, and yet it makes us a little uncomfortable because we're trying to pit the compassion we see in Jesus against righteousness and judgment. And as I said at the beginning, we can't pit these things against each other. To quote R.C. Sproul, he says, there's never been a more compassionate human being in the history of the world than was Jesus. This Jesus looked at Jerusalem and knowing what fate would befall Jerusalem in the near future, Jesus wept over the city. He said, oh Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus weeps over the city. And yet, it is the same man of compassion who said, would that it were already kindled. There's a desire on the part of Jesus for holiness and the judgment of evil. In another way, we can understand this, not as exclusive, but both and, is if we connect verse 49 to verse 50, we keep reading, right? Jesus seems to be distressed because he knows the significance and weight of the wrath of God that's coming. He knows that he's the one who's going to have to bear the Father's wrath for sin. And there's a let's get this over with kind of idea. It has echoes of Jesus praying in the garden. Let this cup be taken from me, but not my will, but your will be done. It it sounds a little bit like that in verse 50. I have a baptism, Jesus says, to be baptized with. Now, he was already baptized in the Jordan River by John. This is a baptism of fire. John, in fact, said it himself. I baptize with water, but the one who comes after me, he baptizes with a baptism of fire. So the fires of judgment and purification will fall. And even though Jesus is the only one who is worthy to not have to face judgment, he's going to feel the entire weight of judgment in order to save sinners. And so part of what Jesus is distressed by here, at least we think so as he's expressed it in verse 50, is that he's looking at this going, I know what's coming and I'm going to have to bear it. That word translated as baptism, baptizo, implies not just being touched or singed, it implies being consumed, being completely poured out, engulfed. So I think it's a little of both as we look at this first two verses. Jesus' will is aligned with the will of the Father. His zeal for holiness and righteousness and goodness is the same, right? O Lord, bring your judgment and your justice upon all wickedness. As an aside, we cringe and we are sad when we see injustice and evil in the world around us. We just do. We have an innate desire as human beings for justice. And it exists in us because we are image bearers of God. We want justice too. Because God is a God of justice. So Jesus is saying, O Lord, bring your judgment on all evil. And, O God, would you move me quickly to the cross so that I can accomplish what it is I came to do. This desire heard in Jesus' words to move quickly to, it is finished. Can we we get there? We almost hear in Jesus' words. 
Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3, just for a moment. It'll be on the screen as well. The Apostle Paul opens chapter 3 of his letter to the Christians in Rome, asking this question, so are those who are Jewish, in Paul's case, who have been given God's law, are we better off in terms of being righteous just because of our heritage? And Paul essentially says, well, no. (laughs) Nobody, no human is righteous on their own. No one stands before God on their own, clean and right. Nobody. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, Paul says this, but now, speaking of the coming of Jesus, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, Paul writes, because in His divine forbearance, in His divine patience, He has passed over former sins. And it was to show His righteousness, His perfection at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is how Jesus can hold to this this dual position we see in verses 49 and 50. That His will is aligned with the will of the Father, that holiness and righteousness and justice and judgment would come, and an anticipation, an impatience, if you will, for being the one to bear that justice. Just and justifier. God is holy, He can't not be holy, and in being holy, He cannot abide evil and wickedness. It's contrary to who He is, so He has to deal with wickedness and evil. How? Jesus. Jesus is the means, the propitiation, it's a $10 word, by His blood, that is His death on the cross. Sin has to be dealt with, paid for. And if it is, then sinners can be saved. This is one of those areas where I think we seek temporary peace. We cover our sins. We downplay sins. But we all know that's not a lasting peace, right? It's like sitting on something when we haven't told anyone else. How long does that last for you? How long can you bear sitting on something that you've hidden, right? You live in the anxiety of being exposed. It looks like peace on the outside, but it's turmoil on the inside. But Jesus is saying, no, we don't don't hide sin. We don't just live like that. Let me take care of that. And He takes our sin, and it gets consumed as Jesus is consumed. Our sin gets dealt with, burned up, Consumed as Jesus experiences judgment and wrath on the cross for us. And our sin gets buried and put to death in the grave as Jesus is put in the grave. So we don't. He is just, he doesn't give a pass to sin, and justifier. He's the one who then saves undeserving sinners like me by showing mercy. Jesus is saying, I've come for that reason. To bring with me both justice and judgment and to bear justice and judgment so that you might be saved. It is good for us that God deals with sin. 
And Jesus comes and says, I'm here to deal with your sin, which prompts the reason for the division that Jesus talks about next. What do we do now with this Jesus who deals with sin? That's our second point today. Look at verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. What do we do with this Jesus? The prevailing thinking of the day for the first century, average first century Jew, was that God's Messiah would come and would reestablish the kingdom of Israel, reestablish the throne of David, and that their oppression at the hands of the Romans or other foreign nations would come to an end and they would have peace and prosperity as a nation. And Jesus essentially says, your notions of peace are messed up. No, I tell you. And that no is a very emphatic no. Do you think I've come to bring peace? Absolutely not, is essentially how it sounds. But rather, division. Now, if you were playing a game this morning of why did Jesus come bingo, how many of you would have bring division on your bingo card? Right? Yeah, a couple, a couple people. It's the free square in the middle, right? Because no one wants to actually mark it. You're like, we're just going to give you that one. Right? When we think of Jesus, we think of someone bringing people in, right? Bringing people together, not someone who's cutting people out or pushing them apart. See, what's happening here is Jesus, the God-man, had entered history, had entered human experience. And from this moment forward of Jesus on the earth, every human being will have to wrestle with this question, what do I do with Jesus? And so the people of the day are not sure how to answer that question. And the answer to this question is a dividing line for all humanity in history. It is so significant, it has the power to divide even the most stable and secure of human relationships, the family. A house divided, Jesus talks about. Father against son, mother against daughter, son's wife, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, right? It's not a division about politics or holiday traditions. This is a division at the very line of like eternal significance. And it's not like this is surprising, if we actually take all of what Jesus has said about why he's come and keep it all together, like we talked about earlier. If we actually do that, well, then this kind of starts to make sense. Because while Jesus does welcome in the outcast and he welcomes in the sinner, he also tells them to leave their life of sin. He reclines at the table and has meals with tax collectors and wealthy men. And while Building relationship with them challenges their idolatry and their greed. That's why he tells a rich young ruler to stop having faith in your own accomplishments and your own stuff and go sell all your stuff. He's just pressing on his, his heart idolatry. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the word of the cross if I can steal a little bit from Romans 3, the idea that Jesus would come to deal with sin, that he would be just and justifier, is foolishness, Paul says, to those who are perishing. To the ones standing on the tracks, willfully ignoring that the train is coming, 
The message of a way off the tracks is foolishness to them. There's no train. I'm good. But to those who are being saved, Paul says, it's the power of God. Verse 22 of 1 Corinthians, he says, The Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. To those who don't think they need to be saved because they don't think God is holy, that's one reason why. He doesn't really care about sin. I don't really believe in it. God, if there is a God, doesn't really care about it. I can do what I want. Don't need to be saved because sin's not important. Or who think, well, I'm pretty good by myself. I'm holy in myself. The message of judgment and mercy in Christ is foolishness. They don't need it. But, Paul continues, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And some of you in the room, as you're kind of thinking through this, you've experienced this kind of division in your own relationships, in your own families. Maybe you've come to faith in Jesus and you're overjoyed at what you found. Like the man who's found a treasure buried in a field, you can't contain your joy. It has changed your life. And you go and you tell your brother or your mom or your dad and they look at you confused or worse, upset. Now you've become one of those people, right? Maybe you've experienced that. And essentially Jesus is saying, this is kind of expected. Right? And we can try just about anything we can to, to try to make it easier, to make Jesus more palatable, to blur the line between Jesus, the, the justice one, the judge, and Jesus, the merciful. But we can't have one without the other. Jesus said it himself in Luke chapter 11, whoever is not with me is against me. Right? We already dealt with that. Because what we do with Jesus is the most significant question any of us can answer. And then Jesus turns to the crowds. And give some direction. What do I do with all that Jesus has just said? Look at verse 54. He says to the crowds, essentially, you can forecast the weather, right? You can see clouds in the sky. You can start to see the wind pick up from the south. And you can say, looks like it's going to rain. Or looks like it's going to be a nice day today. Is anyone else looking at the temperatures for this next week? Hallelujah, right? I get excited about that, and then I think to myself, they are just weather forecasters after all, right? There's nothing telling me, despite our best guesses, that it's not going to snow 12 inches. I'm not trying to be a cynic. I'm just, I live here, right? How smart we think we are, Jesus is saying. You can look at the sky and say, oh, it looks like rain. Or maybe some of you have an old sports injury or whatever, and you're like, oh, my knee's sore. I think it's going to snow tomorrow, Right? And Jesus is like, you hypocrites. (laughs) I love that. He just calls them out. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but what you do not know is how to interpret the present time. You can read the signs of the weather, but you don't know the signs of the times. You don't know what's really going on in the world. Now, in the immediate, Jesus is chastising them because he's right there with them. He's like, you have me, we've talked about this in this section already, where he's like, do, do you not, 
How do you not know? I'm right here. That's the immediate to those people who they don't recognize who he is. He is the promised one they've been waiting for and they have no idea. But more more broadly speaking, what we can take from this is Jesus is essentially saying, look around. You, You know what I've just told you about the condition of the world is true. You know what I've said about me is is true, about both judgment and mercy. You know it's right, so it's not that you don't see it. It's that you don't want to see it. That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites, because you know, if you know the law and the prophets, you know what I'm saying is right, so you should be expecting me. You just don't want to see me. And that's, I think, the takeaway for us. We, we know what Jesus is saying. He's like, yeah, he's probably right. I just don't want him to be right. If we read the spiritual sky and track the spiritual wind, then we can see that the world is overwhelmed by brokenness that is brought about by sin. And in order to fix all that's broken, sin needs to be dealt with. And this is where I think some of our discomfort with what Jesus is saying starts to fade. Taking hold of a fuller picture of Jesus, not just being okay with, but literally embracing that Jesus is both just and merciful, that he comes to save and to divide, gives us a new framework for how we live. Here's some application that I've been wrestling with this week, and what do I do with this now? What can we do with this reality that Jesus is both just and justifier, that he's come to bring fire on the earth? couple things. One, it means we can be honest about our sin. We don't have to shy away from controversial conversations about sin. We don't have to pretend like we have it all together as if we don't have any. One of the reasons we take communion weekly at River City is to remind ourselves of this very thing. What Jesus, uh, or excuse me, what John says in 1 John, that if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. But If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If Jesus is just and justifier, then we can be honest about our sin because we know that's how our sin is dealt with and put away. It also means that we can see that following Jesus has a cost. And it might be a significant one. Division, rejection, persecution... It might be what we experience as we come to faith in Jesus and as we follow Him in this world by faith. Because not everyone is going to like what Jesus has to say. Now, we're not talking about division because we are unloving or rude or disrespectful. Sometimes there's division for those reasons. We need to guard against our own sin in those as well. But that's not this. We're talking about division because we are changed by the Holy Spirit and not only believe different things than we believed before, but we desire different things. Old habits are no longer enjoyable for us. Things that used to bring temporary happiness are exposed to be empty and joyless and other people will sometimes feel that, well, you're not better than I am because you no longer enjoy those things or believe like I do. When in reality, we've been transformed Everything about us is being made new. And so that's going to cause division at times and will mean that following Jesus has a cost. And finally, in verse 57, 
Jesus closes this section with a parable. He says, let's say you're on your way to the judge with the person who is bringing charges against you. Wouldn't you make every effort to settle with your accuser before you get to the judge? That's the the telling of this parable. You're on your way with someone who has charges against you to the one who's supposed to adjudicate your case. There's an insinuation here that he knows you're guilty, that, that you know you're guilty. And because he has evidence, the judge is going to find you guilty and you're going to have to repay every last penny you owe. That's the parable. That's a fun one, right? Essentially, Jesus is saying, don't wait. <laughs> like, don't wait to deal with your issues until the last moment. In particular, don't wait until the last minute to deal with sin. And this is just as true with God as it is with individuals that we're in relationship with. Don't think, I'll respond to the Jesus question tomorrow. Because by the time you get to the judge and the case is made, it's too late. And I think Jesus is referencing here, he's looking forward to judgment before God. And the challenge is, you and I won't get out unless we pay every last cent, which is terrifying because it means I will never get out because I cannot possibly pay enough to cover my own debt. We sing the song on the regular here at River City, and I didn't really think about it till late in the process, so I didn't tell Heidi, hey, we should sing this song this week, so sorry about that. That's on me. But we sing this regularly. I think we sang it last week or the week before. I don't remember. What riches of kindness He lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. See, Jesus is saying, here in the midst is the one who can settle your debt. The coming judgment that I'm bringing, Jesus says, with that I'm also offering a way through it. It's me, (laughs) Jesus is saying. I'm the substitute. I'm the, the covering. Settle with me and find your salvation. Because so much of our discomfort with some of these hard things that Jesus has said says way more about us than it does about him. We prefer to simplify. We prefer to, to pick and choose the parts of Jesus and the words of Jesus that seem more palatable, less controversial, and yet to really embrace a, a whole gospel, a whole picture of Jesus. We need to embrace the whole Jesus of this gospel. In order for grace and for mercy to be good, we need to be honest about our need for grace and mercy. In order to be a people that long for justice, that long, that desire the destruction of evil. We need to be honest about the injustice and evil in our own hearts as well as the stuff we see out in the world. And we need to let God's Word tell us God's definition of holiness, what's right and what's not, and not attempt to impress upon Him our understanding of what we think is right. And this is why Jesus, I think, is pressing on their notion of peace. I didn't come to bring peace like you want it, where everything is just kind of covered over and made nice. This is real peace, where I actually come to deal with everything that would cause peace to be unsettled, come to deal with everything that would cause strife, so that there's no more strife at all, and only thing that remains is peace. 
Not because we've carefully balanced out God's justice with His mercy, but because we've come to terms with a God who is just and who is mercy, who is love and who is holy. That He's revealed Himself to us in the person of Jesus, the God-man, who has come to us to save and to cast fire, to restore and ultimately to make all things new. So as we are confronted by these things, these words of Jesus that sometimes make us uncomfortable, my posture has been, and I want our posture as a church to be, would you start with me? Start with me. Start with us so that we might be people, a church, that actually has something to offer, a true and lasting peace to offer to others in our city. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we, we confess our perspective is so often limited. And so when we read your word, it pushes against our limited perspective. It pushes against our comfort. But I pray we would see the beauty of a Savior who is both just and justifier. That because He is just, He deals with our sin, and because He is merciful, He covers us. I pray that as we come to the communion table this morning that we would freshly experience both of those true things. The weight and the cost of putting sin to death and the beauty Gratitude that flows from us as we see we are included in that covering, that His putting sin to death is for us. Encourage us as we come to the communion table, cause our hearts to swell with gratitude and with worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.